Hello, Strange Stories UK here again for Series 4, Part 15. This is The Mystery of Michael Maybrick, Part 2. So, Warren, Charles Warren, the head of the Metropolitan Police, was accused of being less concerned with capturing the Ripper than with ensuring Masonic connections remain hidden, even if that meant destroying vital evidence and endangering the lives of ordinary people. Arresting Jack the Ripper, if he were a rogue Mason, would make the organisation of Freemasonry very unpopular and put its future in doubt. Letters began to arrive, allegedly from the Ripper, taunting Warren and the police. A couple of these letters have information about the message on the wall that Warren had rubbed out. This information had not been given out by the authorities. Some of the letters received were fakes, but others seemed genuine letters from the Ripper, especially as they seemed to contain withheld information. When it became known that Warren had wiped out the important clue, I think it was the City of London Police let the information slip, probably deliberately. They didn't like Warren of the Metropolitan Police. Anyhow, there was public outrage, and eventually Warren was forced to resign, allegedly before the murder of Marie Jane Kelly on the 9th of November 1888. He was replaced by, as head of the Metropolitan Police by James Monroe. On the 3rd of October 1888, a torso of a woman without head or limbs was discovered at Whitehall, central London, in the cellars of a new building now known as New Scotland Yard. The arms were later found dumped in the River Thames. This is known as the Whitehall Mystery. The perpetrator was never caught, and the police denied it had anything to do with Jack the Ripper. The files relating to the case have since disappeared. All the available evidence today points at it being the work of Jack the Ripper. Bruce Robinson argues that placing a torso as he did was an outrageous, and in his words, piss-take on behalf of the Ripper as he was placing a body in the building about to become the centre of police investigations. The Metropolitan Police, however, insist there was no connection with the Whitechapel murders. When trying to investigate into the torso in the records office, 130-odd years later, Robertson said that there was nothing, no papers, no statements, not a scrap of contemporaneous paper regarding the case. The nearest paperwork that he could find was MEPO, that's Metropolitan Police, 5 oblique 271, which was a general statement dated October 1936. Quite extraordinary for such a high-profile case during the panic of the Ripper killings. The incident was a great embarrassment to the police, and clearly got rid of the records. The police investigation was ridiculed in the press as it seemed that the torso had been killed early on in September, and it was placed in the cellar at New Scotland Yard sometime after the 29th of September. It was a puzzle to the police how and why the parcel would be placed where it was, especially as the limbs to the torso were thrown into the river. Had it been an ordinary murder, 
such as they were used to investigating, it would have been expected that the culprit would have put all the body in the River Thames. So there must have been some reason or message behind the placing of the torso. The press were under no doubt that it was the Ripper having some fun goading the police. The police in response tried to bamboozle public opinion. They released a letter to the press with a copy of the letter that they'd received. For some reason, they'd copied or rewritten the letter. The police claimed that the letter was from the Ripper. In the letter, Jack, the Ripper, promises he did not kill the torso found in the foundations of the new police headquarters, that he only kills prostitutes, his desire being to respect and protect honest, respectable women. This is ridiculous, the police picking and choosing what Ripper letters to release to the press. The actual letter, of course, has been long since lost, deliberately destroyed. Why did the police copy the letter? Well, the letter was probably a fake written by the police in the first place. The Ripper wrote again two weeks later, claiming another torso, which he called the Battersea Girl, of being a victim of his. This letter's also gone missing. Questions were asked if there was another body to be found in the foundations of Scotland Yard. Was there another body there? The police said they had made a meticulous search and there was nothing else to be found. The letter is fake, there is no other body. <laughs> However, on the 10th of October, a journalist and his dog called Smoker went into the dark cellars and Smoker found a human leg, buried in the soil close to where the torso was found, thus ridiculing the police claims of a thorough search and showing their incompetence. The newspapers were realising that the Ripper was taunting the police. There was also subtle Freemasonry symbolism, such as um, a building sacrifice involved in the letters and with the bodies. I've not gone into the symbolism for the podcast for the interest of keeping the story flowing. So please read the Bruce Robinson book for fuller explanation. The leg had been buried before the torso and had been left in the cellar, indicating that the murderer, the Ripper, had made two visits to the cellar to place the body parts. This was confirmed by decomposition rates and maggot activity. The post-mortem said that the body had been found wrapped up in a parcel which was full of maggots. The torso was female, she had been tall and well-nourished, and in her mid-twenties. She did not seem to have been in manual labour, she was probably a servant. The most significant fact was that it seemed that the leg did not match with the torso, indicating that there were two murders. In a letter sent to the police, supposedly from the Ripper, he had referred to the murders of the Chelsea girl and the Battersea girl. Whatever happened to the rest of the body that the leg came from was unknown. Lily Vass was 18 years of age when she disappeared from Chelsea during July 1888. From a description from Lily's mother, the torso matched that of Lily. She did not view the torso. It was considered, therefore, that the torso was that what was left of Lily. It was thought that Lily was taking up a new position as a servant with a new employer on the Isle of Wight. Michael Maybrick had a home on the Isle of Wight. 
Robinson hints that Lily Vass was probably offered a position by Michael Maybrick, probably kept prisoner by him before being killed and her body dismembered so he could play his funny games. The newspaper had printed letters signed by the Ripper. These were known as the Dear Boss Letter, sent on the 25th of September, saying that he would kill again soon and clip the ladies' ears off and send them to the police. He requested that the police hold the letter back until then. The Saucy Jack postcard had also been sent to the Central News Agency, postmarked the 1st of October 1888. It was thought to be genuine, although there were claims from the police that journalists had written it in order to keep the public interested in the story. It's now thought to be genuine, although it's disappeared from public records. It's thought that the Ripper sent letters to the police via the Central News Agency, as the police would probably not tell of any letters that they'd received. It's possible that he, had, the Ripper, had already sent the police letters which were never released to the public. Kept quiet. Unhappy over the performance of the police, local tradespeople in the East End formed a vigilante committee under George Lusk. Lusk. Vigilance committee under George Lusk. Rewards had also been put up. Lusk kept on at the Home Office to do more than they seemed to be doing. He kept coming up with suggestions, which the Home Office ignored. On Monday the 15th of October, 1888, three witnesses described a tall man of six feet, aged about 45, of slim build, seemingly in disguise, making inquiries into the address of Mr Lusk. The next day, Mr. Lusk received half a human kidney in the post with a letter, the letter saying, Mr. Lusk, sir, I send you half the kidney I took from one woman, preserved it for you. The other piece I fried and ate, very nice. I may send you the bloody knife that took it out if you can only wait a little longer. Catch me when you can, Mr. Lusk. It seemed to have been sent by the Ripper. He realised that Lusk was unhappy with the police and knew that if he sent the police the kidney, it would get lost. But Lusk would make sure that the story was published in the media with great fanfare. The Vigilance Committee did not trust the police and arranged their own tests on the kidney. Finally, it came from a woman aged about 45 who drank too much and suffered from Bright's disease. And the kidney had been taken within the last three weeks. The murdered woman, Catherine Eddowes, had her left kidney removed and it was proved most likely to be hers. The police, desperate to give an alternative explanation, suggested it was medical students being mischievous. Police investigations came to nothing, the police fudging dates so as not to have to investigate the tall man that had been searching for Mr Lusk's address. The Ripper realised that the police were manipulating dates so he sent a further letter. This is known as the From Hell letter. It was sent from news two newspapers wondering how Mr Lusk had enjoyed the kidney and that it had been sent last Monday, being very clear about dates that the police were trying to fudge. This letter was considered genuine, matching the Dear Boss and Saucy Jack communications. There were many letters sent out over the next few months, Many that have studied the Ripper claim that they're all fakes. Some of them were fake, 
However, Bruce Robinson argues that a substantial number were written by the Ripper. He says that in his opinion, the Ripper, Michael Maybrick, was amusing himself by antagonising those in authority. Authority figures are a target. The Prime Minister, Lord Salisbury, is called an old Jew. Queen Victoria is an old bitch, and the head of the Metropolitan Police is an old pig. Robinson thinks that the number of letters the police say they received is exaggerated. There was no avalanche of letters, but there was a lot of deceit from the police insinuating that there were thousands of letters. A Freemason biographer claimed that there was 1,200 letters daily. But these were not letters coming from the Ripper. These were from the public writing in with suggestions and offers of assistance. Actual letters from the Ripper, or claiming to be from the Ripper, were far fewer, perhaps as few as 70. The letters the Ripper usually sent were via the Central News Agency. Robinson then goes on to argue how Michael Maybrick, famous musician and singer, composer, was able to send letters from around the country and from abroad. Robinson charts which towns and cities that Maybrick was playing in theatres and music venues and matches them to the letters that were sent by the Ripper. He also ties up murders that coincide with Michael Maybrick being in the area when he was on tour. Michael Maybrick was said to have developed many styles of handwriting and used many different pens and was prone to use some unusual affections of style. It was also pointed out that there were never any murders in London which were attributed to the Ripper when Michael Maybrick was on tour. The letters that were sent from the uh, America were undated and it's explained how Maybrick would visit ocean liners in the port of Liverpool about to set sail to America and post a letter in the seamail box. These would be posted when the ship reached the USA. They would be sent back to the UK with an American postmark. There were also suggestions that the Ripper had inside information. In November 1888, Queen Victoria wrote her ideas about who the Ripper could be. She suggested that it could be perhaps a seaman from a foreign ship that was visiting London. She wrote this letter to the Home Secretary, and it was classified information, although subject to confidential gossip amongst the ruling class. It appears the Ripper had inside information, as he sent a letter in November 1888. I'm not a butcher, I'm not a yid, nor yet a foreign skipper, but I'm your own light-hearted friend, yours truly, Jack the Ripper. Then there was a goading letter sent dated the 4th of December 1888 signed Jack the Skipper. It was sent from Weston in Somerset, where it's thought that the Ripper killed a ten-year-old girl called Emma Davy. The last so-called canonical Ripper murder was that of Mary Jane Kelly on the 9th of November 1888. The police reports and coroner's investigations were thought corrupt, or deliberately misleading, and the files later went missing. It was thought that the Ripper had chosen that day for the murder as it was the day of the Lord Mayor of London's parade and there was to be a banquet at Mansion Hall when the elite of the establishment, including the Prime Minister Lord Salisbury, the head of the Metropolitan Police, Sir Charles Warren, would be attending. It was also the birthday of the Freemason Grand Master, His Royal Highness Prince Edward, Prince of Wales. As Bruce Robinson commented, the Ripper wanted to fuck up the night celebrations.
The day before the 8th of November, the police had received another Dear Boss letter, which was so offensive and hateful that I won't tell it here, other than to say that he was about to kill again. You also mentioned old Packer, the grape seller, who was too frightened to say anything after seeing the Ripper. The letter is offensive, targeting Warren, women, authority and sex, and it was designed to infuriate the police. It was the American press, the New York Tribune, that suggested that the murders may be linked to a biblical prophet, Ezekiel, who was a woman-hater and had a particular rage for two women called Ahola and Aholiba. This, if you invert their first two letters, that could be the ha-ha that the Ripper used to end many of his letters with. Anyway, Ahola and Aholiba seemed very free with their favours and it sent Ezekiel crazy with hate. The Mary Kelly murder was horrific and there were many Freemason symbolic references. Parts of her body were cut off and burnt to ashes on the fire, a fire which burnt so strong that the kettle's spout melted. The body was mutilated and posed to the extent that it was referred to as an Ezekiel-motivated Masonic piss-take. The mutilations also mocked the deaths of the three Jews mentioned in the previous podcast. The Ripper hated in a similar fashion to an Old Testament prophet. I've not gone into all the symbolism of the murder of Mary Kelly, but Freemasons who knew of the murder would have known what it meant and why the kettle had melted in the fire, reducing human flesh, flesh to ash. The press also pointed, well, opined, how odd it was that the head of the police had sent his resignation letter the day before the murder. After being told in a letter by the Ripper, he was going to kill again. It seems that Warren was forced to resign and he predated his resignation letter. Well, it's past the time when we should be considering the question, who was Michael Maybrick? When he was a child, Michael Maybrick was sent to study music at Leipzig. At the age of 21, he went to Milan to study music and singing. He became a very famous composer and singer. His collaborator on the compositions was Frederick E. Weatherly, who came up with the lyrics. The music was by Stephen Adams, Adams being a pseudonym used by Michael Maybrick. Their fame was considered to be similar to that of Lennon and McCartney in Britain of the 1880s, although unlike the Beatles' partnership, Maybrick and Weatherly were in a homosexual relationship. Robertson said that his first composition sold like Harry Potter and his songs had enormous popularity. His first big hit was Nancy Lee. It's quite a jaunty song, something of a sea shanty, and it's easy to imagine people whistling or humming it during the Victorian period. <coughs> by the late 1860s, Maybrick was a touring singer and musician, and by the early 1870s he became singing popular ballads which he became famous for after he teamed up with the lyricist Frederick Weatherly. The ballads were considered patriotic and sentimental which proved the women combination in the later Victorian period. Very quickly Maybrick became a famous star as famous as contemporary famous uh, personalities such as Oscar Wilde and Gilbert and Sullivan. Maybrick soon became rich mixing with the famous people of the time the equivalent of the Beatles and the Stones of the 1870s was Gilbert and Sullivan 
and Adams and Weatherly. Between 1880 and 1890, the, Ad- the Weatherly-Adams partnership released almost 50 songs. Adams, or Maybrick, had also risen in Freemasonry, and by 1889 he replaced Sir Arthur Sullivan as the grand organist, apparently a great honour. Maybrick was a member of several elite London clubs and was an officer in the Artists' Rifles, which was a popular voluntary army regiment which had in its ranks some of the most famous Victorian painters, Leighton, Millet, Alma Tadama, musicians and theatre personalities, Sullivan, Irving, some of the most famous people in all the country, and they were all Freemasons. These were all in the regiment, the Artists' Rifles. Maybrick joined the regiment in early 1886. His age is given as 40, he was actually 45. His chest measurement was 41 inches, his height 6 foot 1. So a powerful and athletic man who took part in many sporting activities. Robertson tells of how after success, Maybrick's ego expanded. He was a narcissist and a psychopath, and he felt he was better and cleverer than anyone else. Robert Resler, the FBI agent who specialised in the psychological profiling of serial killers, argued that a psychopath is at his most dangerous when he's having fun. And in his opinion, Michael Maybrick felt that he was a godlike figure and had what had been referred to as a god complex. Maybrick had recently composed the song, or the hymn, Holy City, which became the best-selling song, best-selling sheet music of the 19th century. Florence Ansper often stayed with members of the Maybrick family as a young child. She later commented that it seemed that Michael Maybrick was floating on a celestial plane and did not belong to the earth after the success of Holy City, the Holy City song, which, as I say, is more of a hymn, really. Florence said that Maybrick thought he should be classed alongside Shakespeare and Tennyson, and the family joke was he'd already organised his tomb in Westminster Abbey. It could be suggested that as Maybrick had such a high opinion of himself, he was angry that he was not better appreciated by the people that he considered less worthy than himself. As Robinson points out in his book, Michael Maybrick's world is male-dominated. Women hardly feature in his life at all. Maybrick is described as very handsome, talented, intelligent, well-spoken, successful and rich. The police and newspapers were warning of people about the Ripper, the Ripper being described as a short man with a rough voice, so anyone in the company of Maybrick would not associate him with the killer and would, as a result, probably drop their guard. Historians have always suspected that the Ripper had a base in Whitechapel, nearest crime scenes. Maybrick had access to Toneby Hall, a university to the poor, located at the centre of Whitechapel. It opened in uh, 1884, and it's still going strong today. Robinson said that the uh, killer killed eight women in Whitechapel, Tabram, Nichols, Chapman, Stride, Eddowes, Kelly, Mackenzie, and the pinching torso, possibly Lydia Hart. Michael Maybrick would have been welcomed at Toynbee Hall, and free to spend the night there, as were many other performers many of them Maybrick's close friends, just a few minutes' walk to each of the murder scenes. 
Maybrick is thought to have been a semi-regular visitor to Toynbee Hall, helping the careers of young men. Maybrick is thought to have taken part in their military training, along with his friends from the artist's rifles. He was welcome to stay at the room, wherever he wanted, as were other gentlemen who took an interest in boys. I suppose for the predatory homosexual, Toynbee Hall was something of a honeypot. I must admit that I have a problem with trying to work out the motivation for Michael Maybrick acting as the Ripper. I know it's difficult to think uh, as a psychopath, try to imagine why somebody would want to kill someone they didn't know, or even a child. Florence Maybrick always thought that uh, Michael Maybrick had a dislike of her and a spite against her ever since her marriage to her brother. It was suggested that Michael found something attractive about Florence and he hated her for it. Michael had let, lent Florence money which was not repaid. He hated Florence for her airs and attitude. But more than anything else, being a woman seemed to have had power over men from his family and this dislike seemed to grow into hate. Michael must have thought that his uh, brother James a failure, arsenic-ridden, out of money, with a young wife who he had no control over. Michael was a snob, and James's brother was an embarrassment to him. Michael possibly knew that Florence had an affair with Edwin, his younger brother, who was her brother-in-law, and others. Bruce Robinson gives a scenario whereby Michael Maybrick makes a pass at Florence, who brushes him off, saying, Don't be silly, Michael, you prefer boys. It's suggested that after such a slight, a rejection, that would threaten the perception of himself, his superiority, his masculinity, his wealth. And he'd lent her money, and she'd not paid him back. Despite his wealth, Michael could be penny-pinching. The rejection whereby Florence had slept with his brothers but not him may have been the trigger to a diseased mind. This may have caused a killing spree on loose women and once he'd started he found that he was good at it. He enjoyed it. He gave his hate a target. Then it may have occurred to him that he could exploit his brother's obsessive hypochondria. He suggested that Michael travel to London to see his physician, Dr Fuller. There's no evidence that any of this happened, but what we do know is that within the year, Michael had manipulated a situation whereby James was dead, Florence was sentenced to death, her children were living with Michael's doctor, Dr Fuller, and he disposed of all his brother's possessions. Robinson suggests that Michael could easily frame his brother James as being the Ripper. He knew everything about James, his habits, his movements. He might find it amusing but to manipulate a situation whereby James was blamed. And after all, Michael would have a ringside seat to enjoy events as they unfolded. He was a Freemason and a close confidant of many of the in the establishment. He would hear what was being planned and going on behind the scenes from his many contacts. James was a drug addict, a serial adulterer, a bigamist, who belonged to a London Freemason lodge whose Saturday meetings required him to travel from Liverpool to London at weekends to give him the opportunity to kill in London. The murders all taking place around the weekend. Michael would have known if James was accused of being the Ripper. It would have been hidden by the establishment, 
the government, Freemasonry and the police, but he was one of the chosen few who would hear the gossip and chatter. Michael went to work to frame James, leaving various clues such as American expressions, falsification of documents, dates of murders when James was in London. Michael may have let his worries slip about the troubles James was having with his American wife, or that James would act in an irresponsible manner due to his drug addiction. He may tell people that he knew about this, knowing that the news might spread. It's possible that Michael became overconfident and left more obvious clues to frame his brother. There were stories published in a local Liverpool newspaper about a respectable-looking man in Liverpool Park scaring older women by asking them if they knew of any loose women in the area while holding a knife. This was reported on the 10th and the 12th of October, 1888. Michael and James both looked quite similar. Could it be that James was being set up as part of the Ripper's funny little game? Did Michael get a thrill out of the risks he was taking, perhaps confident that he could do a Boris and explain it away if he was caught? There was a letter received on the 24th of October, claiming it was from the Ripper, saying that he intends to kill again as it's his birthday. James Maybrick had a birthday. He was 50 on the 24th of October, 1888. Robinson, while making investigations into Freemasonry careers of both James and Michael, that everything was wiped about them. Michael's, free, uh, Michael's main Freemason lodge was the Orpheus Lodge, a lodge for mainly musicians, but all the documents had gone missing. The Blitz was always a good excuse. When Bruce Robinson went searching for the Mason archives, he found that those in charge of the records were being very protective, and evidence that uh, was there was fabricated. There were fabricated documents in the Freemason records, which were deliberately inserted to uh, mislead. Robinson by chance found records of James and Michael Maybrick in the Freemasonry records, after being assured that no records existed. Robinson doesn't think that present-day Masons were blocking his investigations, but the records had been amended in the 1880s to lose any reference that the Maybrick brothers had been Masons. It was hinted at by Robinson that uh, the Freemasonry hierarchy were not stupid. Questions would have been asked about Michael when they realised he'd been in a position to frame James as the Ripper. There may have been other concerns over Michael. It's possible that Freemasonry had their suspicions about Michael Maybrick. They may not be able to prove everything, but they would have known things about him. Maybe he was part of the Cleveland Street scandal that was hushed up. But why take the chance? He was contaminated anyway since the Florence Maybrick trial, so he would have to be forced out. The children that Robinson murdered by the Ripper, Johnny Gill and the girl called Emma Davy, who had her throat cut and stomach slashed at Martock in Somerset after lepers, letters from the Ripper were received telling that he intended to kill a boy of about seven and a girl of about ten. This is in November 1888. Robinson suggested that they were surrogates for James and Florence's two children, James, Bobo and Gladys who were of the same age. Bobo was killed in a strange accident in 1911 when he was 29. He drank a tube of cyanide poison thinking it was water. Michael Maybrick was still alive at that time. 
On the 14th of November, 1888, a letter said to be from Jack the Ripper said they intended to kill a boy of about seven years old and two little girls. Letters on the 20th, the 27th of November and the 3rd of December gave further details of how he was going to destroy their bodies by ripping out their hearts. The letter said that he would have the police running around at Christmas. 88. The letters were all signed Jack the Ripper and addressed to Charles Warren at Scotland Yard. These letters were considered fakes by the police, who thought that the Ripper was a person so mentally ill that his brain would soon collapse through his evil thoughts. The 27th of December is supposed to be an important day in Freemasonry. St John's Day, St John being the patron saint of Freemasonry. Michael Maybrick was staying in the Bradford, Yorkshire, at the best hotel in the city, the Hotel Alexandra, and he'd been there since the night of Christmas Day. There was a ball on Boxing Day on the 26th of November. Among the 200-plus guests be a couple called James and Elizabeth Cahill. They lived at 324 Heaton Road, Manningham. The Cahills did not get home until about 10am on Thursday the 27th of December. That was actually on St John's Day. The house had been bizarrely rearranged and there was a card saying that Jack the Ripper had been there. Dated it 9.30, he put a time there, 9.30, and signed it suicide. This was perhaps a reference to the police idea that he, that was not public knowledge that the Ripper had committed suicide. The rearranging of the house seemed to be a mock-up of a Freemasonry ceremony known as the Fifth Liberation. I'm not going to explain any attempt at an explanation other than to say that umbrellas were involved. On the 27th, Thursday the 27th, an eight-year-old boy called Johnny Gill disappeared at Bradford. On the 29th of December, Johnny Gill's body was found terribly mutilated. The legs were cut from the body and laid on the trunk like a skull and crossbones. The body was ripped open, the head repositioned resting on the left hand. There appeared to be Freemasonry, Rosicrucian and Golden Dawn symbolism to both murder and the rearranged house at Bradford. Johnny Gill's organs had been removed and put back. His penis was removed and taken away by the killer. The newspapers reported it as the Jack the Ripper case. They also reported about the strange break-in at the house at Heaton Road. When the police investigated, the initial reports were changed, and within 24 hours, police from the Metropolitan Police arrived and taken over. They imposed a news blackout. With the new year, 1889, the police thought that the Ripper had gone away, probably killed himself. The police liked to think and hoped that a Montague J. Druitt had drowned himself in the River Thames by filling his pockets with rocks, and that he was the Ripper. The police had not publicised their hopes, but they were determined that no more Ripper murders would be reported, whether or not the Ripper was dead or gone away. The police knew that Druitt had died before the murder of Johnny Gill. Maybe they thought it was a copycat murder for the Ripper. Anyhow, the police needed a murderer for the Johnny Gill case, and they arrested a 23-year-old called William Barrett, who knew and was friendly with Johnny Gill, and was the last person to have been with him. 
That was all the evidence that the police had against Barrett. The police claimed that it was, must have been Barrett that broke into the house at Heaton Road and rearranged it according to an obscure Freemasonry ceremony, but they had zero evidence. In court, Barrett was faced by a Freemason in Golden Dawn stitch-up. Barrett was accused of sodomy, murder, draining the blood and cutting up and parceling up the body of Johnny Gill. The trial was a farce and it was clear that the police were wanting to convict someone, anyone, in order to close the case. They got their way. William Barrett was hung for the murder of Johnny Gill and it was case closed. Robinson gives a deconstruction of the Gill murder and the symbolism and all the ancient Egyptian mythology involved in his book. For reasons of space and time, I have not attempted any analysis, but his explanations convinced me. It could be said that the conviction of William Barrett was a forerunner that had been planned the same year for Michael Maybrick's brother James. James to be killed by his brother Michael and Florence Maybrick convicted of the crime. But I won't consider this case in detail. As already said, I've done a standalone podcast on this, top, um, on this topic, the Florence Maybrick trial during November 2020. Along with the William Barrett case, the Maybrick case is now seen as the worst miscarriages in justice in a British court. This was known in small part being the result of Michael Maybrick being a famous figure with much influence, bullying those around him to do as he wanted and come to the conclusions that he wanted to. It's difficult to know what the established thought about the Ripper during spring 1889. Some thought he was now dead. But there were whispers that Florence Maybrick had discovered that her husband, James, may have been the Ripper. As a consequence, although he was now dead, he died on the 11th of May 1889, he had to be disassociated from the Freemasonry and Florence silenced. Michael Maybrick being an influential Mason and James's brother was in an ideal place to do what was wanted by the state or the establishment. Circumstantial evidence suggested that James could be the Ripper and it's probable that Michael was convincing his influential friends and contacts that this was indeed the case. Michael Maybrick's motivation for suggesting his brother was the Ripper was that it was an insurance policy for him to do as he wished. He knew the secrets of James and Florence and how to frame them. It suggested that as he was the Ripper, he could push the blame onto his own brother, who was now dead anyway and he knew that his brother that he knew that the brotherhood the freemasonry would hide the fact that the ripper was a freemason perhaps michael thought he could still carry out murders if he changed his modus operandi demo which is what probably happened another theory is that alice mckenzie well the alice mckenzie murder in july 1889 was committed by the ripper as james was dead at this time suspicion would fall upon michael as he seemed so central to events. As Robinson points out in his book, The Ruling Classes, the establishment is a club that never meets. Its members know instinctively how to act. There's no chain or command or incriminating evidence. Its members don't need to be told how to act. It's instinctive. Robinson said there were three conspiracies in operation in 1889. One, the conspiracy to frame Charles Parnell, Two, the Cleveland Street scandal, which I mentioned in the previous podcast. And thirdly, the conspiracy to hide Jack the Ripper. The trial of Florence Maybrick was concluded in August 1889. 
It's interesting that although on trial for her life, Florence was unable to speak for herself, there was no provision for her during the case to contend or contribute or contest the allegations. She had been set up by Michael Maybrick. It was said that when Michael gave his evidence against her in court, she watched him with an expression of fascinated disbelief, almost of repugnance. The whole court case was a stitched up to convict Claude Florence, who heard that she was sentenced to death. Most people thought there was not enough evidence to convict. The judge's summing up went on over two days. On the first day, he seemed sympathetic towards Florence Maybrick, but his attitude seemed to have completely changed when he concluded his summing up on the second day. It was as if somebody had spoken to the judge on the last evening of the trial to make sure Florence was convicted. This was probably his son, an influential Freemason, and interestingly, another Jack the Ripper suspect. It was in their interest to get Florence convicted if her husband was thought to be the Ripper. I've not gone into any detail here, but there was circumstantial evidence to make James Maybrick a suspect as being the Ripper. After the trial, there was so much disquiet that Florence had a sentence changed to life imprisonment by the Home Secretary, Matthews, who didn't have much choice given the hostility against the verdict. There were also questions asked about Michael Maybrick's role in the death of his brother, as he had the opportunity as much as Florence to kill James and Michael was the one that took charge of James's affairs and property after his death. Threats to sue were issued by Michael Maybrick, and questions against him stopped, but suspicions remained. This may have persuaded those in powerful positions to insist that Michael Maybrick disappear from public life. The Maybrick trial also caused a diplomatic tiff with the USA, and questions continued to be asked. One question asked in the House of Commons Parliament caused the Home Secretary to reveal that there had been a secret dossier on Florence Maybrick which proved her guilt. So there had been a secret. That was the reason that the woman was being locked up, it was suggested, because the revelations were made by her brother-in-law Michael Maybrick saying that Florence knew her husband was Jack the Ripper, caused in part by Florence's behaviour. We can only guess, but we will never learn what was inside that dossier, which was never produced, and now is almost certainly destroyed. In 1892, Michael Maybrick moved from his apartment at Clarence Gate Regents Park to a large villa at 52 Wellington Road, St John's Wood, Marylebone, London. He was extremely wealthy, and his biggest hit, The Holy City, had just been released. Then Michael Maybrick gave up his London life, his contacts, his clubs, his luxurious life. Although homosexual, he married his housekeeper, a stout, plain 40-year-old daughter of a trains, tradesperson. He married her on the 9th of March, 1893, in a registry office. It's claimed that his popularity had waned since the Florence Maybrick trial. Maybrick set up home with his wife at Linthorpe near Ryde on the Isle of Wight where he seemed to live a life of exile until he died in 1912. He played a part in local Isle of Wight life. He was the mayor of Ryde for many years and a magistrate. It was said that he was imposed as mayor of the uh, Ryde on the Isle of Wight. He died of heart failure on the 26th of August 1913. 
Robinson thought that the establishment suspected that Michael Maybrick was the Ripper, or knew much more about the Ripper than he was saying. He was told that he had to marry and move to somewhere remote. As Michael Maybrick knew no women, he lived in a masculine world and didn't know any women, so he married his housekeeper, Laura Withers. The most extraordinary aspect of the change in lifestyle was that Michael Maybrick was written out of history. Everyone that knew him forgot they ever had. Robinson described how he searched for mentions of Michael Maybrick in social, musical and Masonic histories. There was no mention in the history of the artist of him in the history of the artist volunteers. No mention of Michael Maybrick in the Savage Club, the Philharmonic Society, the Arts Club, the Office, Orpheus and George Freemason uh, chapters. Michael was hardly mentioned in the diaries or, or reminiscences of the many famous contemporaries that he knew. Nobody ever mentioned Michael Maybrick or his pseudonym Stephen Adams. Bruce Robinson makes the point that there are other celebrated Victorian performers that are virtually unknown today in 2022, but all you have to do to discover them is to read about them in the archives. They've all had books written about them. There are no written records of Michael Maybrick. Robinson said he spent hours searching for Michael's name in various archives and libraries, but found very little. Just about nothing, he says. Robinson went over the records of Arthur Sullivan and Frederick Weatherly, the two artists that Michael Maybrick was closest to during his time of fame. Dozens of books exploring every facet of their lives, but there was no mention of Maybrick or Adams. Stevens Adams' name even disappeared from the sheet music records. Robinson did track down a distant relative in Connecticut, USA, called Laura Withers, who sent him a photograph of the interior of the house on the Isle of Wight, taken a few years after Michael's death. There were also reminiscences by Amy Main, who was Michael's niece, who was sent to stay at Linthorpe during her summer holidays, and was said to dread going there. Amy said that Michael did not like children, and she was told to stay out of his way and not make any noise. She said that her uncle and aunt were very cold people. Her uncle she describes as vain, arrogant, dictatorial, not having any friends. He spent most of his days in his study and did not recall any visits to the house. Bruce Robinson then tracked Michael Maybrick through the records to Houston in Texas and in 1894 there were six Ripper-like murders there whilst Michael was in residence. In March 1992, an unemployed Liverpool scrap merchant named Michael Barrett produced a journal purporting to be James the Maybrick's confessions to being Jack the Ripper. Later, a watch turned up, also in Liverpool, inscribed with the initials of the canonical victims, also inscribed with J. Maybrick and the words, I am Jack. Michael Barrett originally said that he received the journal in May 1991 from a friend of his, Tony Devereux, who died three months later. But in June 1994, Barrett issued a statement through a solicitor saying that the diary was fake. In July 1994, Barrett's wife, Anne Graham, she changed the name after she divorced him, she claims that the diary was in her possession and she secretly gave it 
to Devereux to give to her husband in the hope that he would turn it into a novel. She said she did not give it to her husband herself, as she knew that he would pester her with endless questions about it. Anne Graham claims that she got it from her father, Billy Graham. Billy Graham said he got it from his stepmother, Edith, in 1943, telling him that it was from his granny, thought to mean Edith's mother, Elizabeth Formby. In 1889, the Formbys ran a laundry near the Maybrick residence and was friendly with the servant there. Apparently, Formby was a local fence. It was suggested that items stolen from the Maybrick home came into Formby's possession. Although it passed through many hands, nobody seemingly, seemingly read it prior to Anna Graham. Anne Graham. Billy Graham also made the claim that his grandmother was in fact Florence Maybrick, who had his father at the age of 16 in Hartlepool. This is not verifiable and probably a family and myth. An alternative explanation is that a person called Paul Dodd had his apartment at Battlecrease House, which was the bedroom and offices of James Maybrick. He had them renovated during uh, a period of the late 80s, early 90s. He had work done in a flat, and that, which meant the floorboards being lifted. Two of the workmen drank at a pub called the Saddle Inn, where Devereux also drank. It suggested that the workmen took the diary they found at Battlecrease House and gave it to the Devereux. The police supposedly knew the providence of the diary, but they had not released any information on it. Supposedly it was protected under the Official Secrets Act. Then again, there's no proof of this. Anyhow, the leather-bound scrapbook is supposed to have been James Maybrick's writing down his thoughts his anger at his unfaithful wife who refused to have anything to do with him. The writer is excited and angry at the thought of his wife sleeping with another man. He can't harm her, as she's his wife, so he shifts his hate onto sex workers. He admits to being Jack the Ripper in the diary. The diary is accurate on dates and details that were not released to the press. There were confidential letters that would have only been known about by the killer that were mentioned in the diary. There were several details that were not known about at the time that proved to be correct, such as Liz Stride perhaps being killed by her own knife, a knife found nearby, her body. Edo's possessions included an empty tin matchbox. This was not paid, made public until 1897, when Public Records Office released the information under the 100-year rule. There was a determination to prove that the diary was fake, or the journal was fake. As in, sorry, as in 1983, the Sunday Times had been duped by buying the fake Hitler diaries, which destroyed the reputation of Hitler expert Hugh Trevor Roper, who said that the diaries were genuine. This episode made any expert reluctant to state that the recently found documents were genuine, especially a document as surprising as a diary of Jack the Ripper, which in some ways was fake, as it wasn't written by James Maybrick. Although tests carried out by the British Museum show that it did in fact date back to the 1880s. And tests on the watch also proved that the scratches, I am Jack, and the initials of the Ripper victims dated back to the 1880s. Despite all the efforts to discredit the diary, all failed. I think we have to assume that the diary was produced during the time of the murders in 1880 in the 1880s by someone who was involved. 
The most likely explanation is the die was written by Michael Maybrick and hidden at the house in the hope that it would be found at some time and all the blame for the ripper being put onto his brother James. Michael Maybrick became head of the Isle of Wight Conservative Association and in his obituary in the Isle of Wight local newspaper described him in 1912 as kind, chivalrous and noble and his portrait is said to still hang in the council offices and he's buried at Ryde Cemetery on the Isle of Wight. Well, so concludes the mystery of Michael Maybrick. I'd like to thank you all for listening and downloading. Thank Damselfly for providing the background music. And until next time, I'll say thank you and goodbye.